Hello, this is Brad Schwartz, professor and chairman of Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. On behalf of Richard Wolf Medical, the Endourological Society, and the Journal of Endourology, I would like to welcome you to the latest release in our podcast series. Each month, we will be presenting a current events topic of interest to our listeners. This broadcast, I'm happy to introduce Dr. Craig Rogers. He is chairman of urology at the Henry Ford Health System and program director of the Robotic and Clinical Research Fellowship at Henry Ford Hospital. His expertise and international recognition in the area of robotic partial nephrectomy is virtually unparalleled, and I'm really honored to have him as a guest today. We're going to be basically speaking on what is new in partial nephrectomy and maybe touching a little bit on his his past and and what brought him to this point. But Craig, welcome, and uh, really, again, a great pleasure to have you here. It's great talking with you. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here. So I, I guess, you know, one of the questions I get asked is, uh, you know, you look at a you look at a CT scan, MRI, some cross-sectional imaging, and, and the first question is always, well, how do you know whether you can do a partial? I mean, you, you do partials on probably things that other people don't, you know, can't, won't, and don't. Um, what goes on in your mind as far as when you think you can really do a partial nephrectomy? Great question. I try to look at the complexity of the tumor size. We have a scoring system for complexity, nephrometry scoring. You look at other factors such as prior abdominal surgery. Can you even get to it? Are there scar tissue? Are you going to have to mobilize that kidney? Is the mass abutting critical structures where if you have to cut it out with a margin, are you going to devascularize that kidney or put that patient more at risk for urine leak and problems? Or more importantly, are you potentially leaving cancer behind if it's an infiltrative tumor? Um, you look at how high are the stakes on this to, that the patient absolutely has to have a partial nephrectomy? If it's a patient with normal renal function, a normal contralateral kidney, but a very large, deep endophytic, poorly defined tumor, maybe that patient's better off with a total nephrectomy. Whereas if it's more important with some decreased kidney function, you want to do everything you can to save it. And you tell that patient there may be a slightly higher risk of complications such as bleeding or urine leak, but you're going to give it, you know, your best shot to do this. So with that in mind, without going really into, you know, tremendous detail of your technique, I, I kind of wanted to touch on a couple of different aspects of a technique. Is it customary for you to clamp the artery and the vein, just the artery? Do you do them off clamp? And what are your thoughts on a nucleation? You can kind of maybe group into one. Yeah, sure. I can cover all those. So I most, I usually, for just a standard partial nephrectomy, I will usually just clamp the artery alone. Times where I'll clamp the vein is if it's a deep endophytic tumor where I think visualization could be compromised that I'll be getting into venous sinuses, then I will clamp the vein. That's more common on a right-sided tumor where you have a shorter renal vein just with pressure straight off the cava that I may clamp artery and, and vein, but usually artery alone. As for enucleation, if a tumor is abutting critical structures where there is no option to take a margin of tissue with it, by definition, if you're going to pull off a partial nephrectomy, you have to enucleate at times the deep margin that's abutting the a branch of the artery or something. You know, you'll do it there. If a patient has significant chronic kidney disease where you're trying to spare all the parenchyma possible, that may be an instance to do it. If it's hereditary conditions, such as von Hippel-Lindau disease, obviously you're going to do enucleation 
there are certain tumors. Let's say a patient's had a biopsy ahead of time. You know it's clear cell renal cell carcinoma. Those tend to have more of a pseudocapsule that are more amenable to enucleation. Um, then I'll do that. Whereas a tumor such as a papillary may not have as well-defined of a pseudocapsule. And just to backtrack, back to the question about the artery and vein again, think in your mind scenarios, if you're doing a partial nephrectomy and you're having bleeding during the resection, if you've clamped both the artery and the vein, in the back of your mind, you have to think, gosh, did I miss some inflow somewhere? Is there a branch like off the adrenal or something that that I missed, then you've got inflow, but no outflow. So what it, the first thing you do is you unclamp the vein, right? So if that's gonna be my backup anyway, I kind of came to the point, well, why not just go with that from the get-go? So then if I've missed a vessel, it's less likely to hurt me. So then I only clamp the vein when I really need to shut it down for visualization. To kind of piggyback on that. So I know everyone in the world has had this scenario and I just, I don't have an explanation, but let, Let's say you're on the left side and you clearly only have one artery and you go on the aorta and you clamp the artery at the aorta. So you know that you are doubly bulldog clamped on the artery. You know there is no red blood cell entering that kidney from anywhere. And you have a reasonable tumor. It's not totally endophytic. It's not a chip shot. But you start dissecting this thing and you run into bleeding. Where is that bleeding coming from and how does one obtain the absolute bloodless field that people post their videos online and, and, at, and at national meetings. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> it's always sort of a dreaded feeling, right? When you start cutting in, it's bleeding. And initially I may think, well, this is just congestion. We'll give it a few, you know, five, 10 seconds and right. it'll stop. And then when it's not stopping, you're like, okay, what did we miss? It, is there a branch coming off the adrenal that we missed? Are the bulldogs just not working? I, when I go through a checklist before going on clamp, one of the things in addition to checking my bulldogs is to have a Satinsky clamp ready where I can just go on block across the hilum and shut everything down. Now that comes at a cost. You've now burned your assistant port, right? You've got a clamp sticking out of it. If, if it's a Satinsky that might hit your, your robotic trocars and then you have to put another port in. Or what I'll just do is uh, instead of using the robotic bulldog clamps, I'll just have a very large, such as an Ascolap clamp that I can put across the vein and the artery and everything. And I can even take that into the adrenal somewhat if, if there's a branch that I've missed up there. So I do have that as a backup. Or sometimes you'll just stop the resection and say, all right, I'm going to drop the adrenal and just make sure there's nothing up there to facilitate a non-block. But there, there may be times where you just have to, if it's kind of a smaller tumor, like you said, you do your best, maybe irrigate as you go so you can at least see as you're cutting and just get it done so you can start putting stitches in. There have been times where I've just stopped the resection and put a few of your inner layer sutures in just to slow it down or put a sponge on it so you can kind of resect and compress, resect, compress. A lot of different tricks. Great tips for that, sure. What is your thought on uh, ICG or Firefly and how often do you realistically use it? Realistically, I don't use it that much, not in my routine practice, where, where I think Firefly really has value is for selective clamping. Then you've got to ask yourself, really, what is the long-term benefit of selective clamping or off-clamp for that matter? Because it's 
looking like there's questionable benefits long-term of the selective clamping, even with total clamping, if your clamp time is in this 20 to 25 minute range, there's been really nothing to show that, that that's going to be any worse than if you just clamped one vessel or even did it off clamp. Sort of the, the playing field becomes level after, you know, within three to six months. So for me, it's all about seeing. I just need to see the tumor. If you're going to do a good job, a good cancer operation, you got to see what you're doing. And I'd rather just shut the kidney down, but shut it down for a very short period of time. Now, if it's obvious, you've got a branch off the hilum that's clearly going into the tumor and nowhere else. And again, if it's where stakes are higher, chronic kidney disease, et cetera, then in that case, I will do selective clamping. I'll get firefly. If it's a patient that has multiple vessels and I really want to make sure I've shut that kidney down, maybe I'll go on clamp, give ICG just to confirm that you've really got the blood supply that you thought you did. But I'm not doing routine selective or off clamping, just minimal ischemia. Just keep it short. Sure. Well, I, I, again, on the coattails that you're kind of reading my mind here, maybe someone gave you a script of the, of the questions, <laughs> I don't know. But there's been some recent data that might suggest the warm ischemia time is much less important than the amount of parenchyma removed. I think we've all had, uh, to some degree, certainly more more so longer ago and less so more recently as we get more experienced, but we've all had ischemia times of 35, 40, 45 minutes uh, way back when. And, you know, you always wonder is, oh my gosh, are we doing something horrible and critical to the kidney? What are your thoughts on warm ischemia versus parenchyma removed and restored? And and how how can some of the surgeons out there who are listening to this better position themselves to maintain negative margins while preserving renal parenchyma? Sure. So you've hit on important things, right? Renal ischemia time is important, and so is um, preservation of as much kidney function as possible. You know, when I try to go into, okay, which is more important than the other? These are like trying to figure out, your kids ask you, which, which of them do you like the best or something? Well, you love them both and you're trying to, you, you like all your kids, they're all important. You want them all to feel good. Like I want to limit ischemia time, but I, I don't want to give someone a blank check to just say, well, it's less important than, than volume preservation. So you have a blank check to just clamp the kidney for an hour. You still want to keep it minimal, but if you want to go fast, actually sometimes going slow and methodical and precise, take your time to cut the tumor out, see what you're doing, sew it up well. And if it's 29 minutes or 31 minutes, this is not a disaster. I mean, what was your alternative? It would have been an ischemia time of infinity because you took the kidney out. Like it's certainly better than that. And if it takes someone a few extra minutes to do a good job, I'd say do that. Now, if somebody looks at this and hopefully has the insight to say, I might be able to do this, but I think it would take me 50 minutes and it might take my colleague 20 minutes, then having the wisdom to know what your limitations are and to be able to refer if that's the case. But for a straight up two centimeter anterior cortical tumor, whether it's 15 minutes or 21 minutes, I really don't think there's going to be any long-term implications. It's more important, did you get a minimal margin? You're not going super wide unnecessarily, but you're not 
compromising your margin status. You've got a good in visualization, a face on view, good ischemia to do a good job oncologically. I think that's more important. Again, great insight. So at one of my hospitals, I operate mainly out of two hospitals. One of my hospitals, I get intraoperative gross margin. I find that it gives me immediate feedback, tells me exactly what I can kind of correlate to the imaging studies where, you know, where I've resected, where I thought maybe it was uh, protruding a little bit, where, you know, it may have been involving the collecting system or, or some, uh, you know, some other adjacent structures, what have you. Do you ever get intraoperative gross margins and do you accompany the tumor with the pathologist? Or is that just something you're so accustomed to now that you just send it and that's it and you're done? And then what is your algorithm for positive margins should you get them? Great question. So I don't routinely get the intraoperative gross margins. I was going to ask you, when you're getting them at this hospital, are you on clamp while that's going on? So you're sewing the kidney up while you wait. Again, we both have the luxury of having residents or fellows and such. We're pretty much done sewing it up. I will put it in the bag or I'll remove it. I'll take the tumor. And then my resident will be either cleaning up a little bit, removing the vessel loop, uh, maybe adding some, uh, some of the hemostatic agents that we all use and, and we like, cinching down some of the wet clips if you use a sliding clip technique, cleaning up the area. It doesn't take that long to do a gross margin. All they do is ink it and cut it and look at it. So it's not, it's not microscopic. I mean, I think something like that can can have several benefits. It can provide reassurance for you as a surgeon and for your patient, especially if you take a picture of it or let them know that, hey, it, it looked good when the pathologist looked at it with me. Um, it's, it's rare that that is going to change my management. If I've had a magnified view throughout the surgery, I know I'm out of the pseudocapsule. I mean, unlike prostate, it's usually pretty clear when you get into these tumors and there's like this neon yellow, you know, sign to say, Hey, you're, you're too close to this. You're going to course correct back up, get into the parenchyma and go deeper with limited tissue. I want them to have the best information possible where they're not doing a frozen section for me They're you know, or anything like that. I mean, there are times though, where I'll do a gross where I'll take it to help the pathologist to say, Hey, I had to enucleate the deep margin where you're seeing pseudocapsule here, that's where a branch of the artery was. And I want to educate them to let them know, look, I saw no pseudocapsule violation, but the true margin is where you're seeing parenchyma here. There really is no margin that you can evaluate at this one site. So it, I will walk specimens down, um, especially an endophytic tumor. There are some tumors that doesn't even poke out and You'll see it on ultrasound, but I want to bivalve it and verify that, yep, we got the tumor. So I will do it for that. There are times where I would actually wait for a pathologist before leaving the room. Let's say there was a rare case where there was gross violation of the tumor, that you've tried to do a heroic partial or something, and there's a question that something doesn't look right. And in my mind, I'm thinking maybe this needs to be a radical nephrectomy. This tumor is more aggressive than we thought. That would be a case where if the margin doesn't look right, I'm not going to leave with a potential gross margin. I'm going to send a frozen thinking that may lead to a nephrectomy. That's, that's the only time I'd wait for a pathology before the patient leaves. Otherwise, it's like you said, bring it down and look at it, maybe help guide your pathologist. To your question about, so what do you do when it's a week later, you're seeing the patient and it says focal microscopic positive margin. 
you know, what do you do with that? I mean, some of these are artifactual of as you're doing a robotic partial nephrectomy, you have metal instruments that are touching the tumor and you're retracting, you're pushing on it. So you can have a time maybe where you've course corrected and there's been a scratch in the pseudocapsule that didn't translate to actual cancer being left in the patient. And the studies that have looked long-term at these focal positive margins, it's been mixed, but many of them have not shown it to be an independent predictor of recurrence. I will tighten up the, I'll let the patient know, and I'll let them know that I'm going to tighten up the surveillance interval a bit, you know, maybe instead of once a year, get it at least every six months, but for a longer period of time. So I will tighten up. One of my radiologists has a keen interest in 3D printing. He's now converted over to, to very enriched color printing. It's amazing the, the color discernment of structures. And he can find the tumor, which vessels are surrounding it, how much parenchyma is around it, and so on. Really, really cool. I think it has actually helped me with some kind of weird or, or unusual tumors. I uh, wanted to see your thoughts, or have you employed that, or do you feel it's um, not really worthwhile? I've loved it. Our innovation institute at our hospital has been very helpful where they will give them the patient, the CT scan, and they'll construct these 3D models, very similar, color-coded. I was looking at one that uh, one of my partners, Jim Peabody, is using in a surgery coming up, I think, next week, where they made it so it had a hinge where he could crack open the kidney and then the tumor was inside not only does it help me to wrap my head around it, but it helps to explain it to the patient. When you show that to the patient, it gives them a lot of reassurance that to look how much technology has gone into their surgery. I had a case where it really helped me where I had a horseshoe kidney and with just multiple vessels, right? And then a big isthmus. And I was worried about the vascularity and how could I mobilize the kidney? We use the 3D models for that. It was very helpful. These uncommon or unusual circumstances is really the utility. And we had a horseshoe kidney with a tumor on it. Uh, remarkable, remarkable uh, detail. And, and Hyler tumors as well. I found that it helps sometimes for me to be an active participant in that process. Because if you're just using kind of standard software and you're getting into tertiary, quaternary branches, it can help for them to have some clinical input, you know, as they're drawing it out. So, so the model really turns out you know, the, the best way for you, you know, are you really looking at, are you worried about a urine leak? Are you mainly looking at collecting system? Are you more worried about the accessory arteries just to make sure all that is the highest anatomy or the resolution you can get? Great points. Great points. Well, I I don't have a whole lot more, Craig. Your insight is awesome. I guess I just want to leave the listeners with really just one more question. What do you think is really new? Is there anything really new in in partial nephrectomies that we need to be aware of or you think that are coming down the road that might facilitate our helping patients retain renal function and and get rid of uh, tumors? Well, so a few things that are new to me, at least. So our institution for robotics, we have the single port robot. And for me, that is a facilitator of extraperitoneal, retroperitoneal surgery. It really makes, whether it's prostate or kidney. So for those tumors, especially those that are posterior, I haven't really gotten into the complex, large, higher tumors with that. I would still do that multi-port. 
but it does make retroperitoneal surgery easier. We've, we've found that with patients with prior abdominal surgery, you don't have to push away as much of the peritoneum to get all four ports in. It's just one incision and there you go. We may see more retroperitoneal surgery. It's the first iteration of the robot. So unlike, you know, we're on number what, five or whatever with multi-port, it still has a ways to go, but it does give you a glimpse of where the future may go with that. Also with training, uh, what's new, we had a we had a really cool simulation training at our institution where um, with 3D models that actually bleed, you can, they're perfused. Uh, so Dr. Ahmed Ghazi from University of Rochester came down and put on a lab and we actually did the first single port retroperitoneal simulation and our residents loved it. I mean, when you clamp the artery, but if the, the clamp fell off on one and it's starting to bleed and their adrenaline is running just like it was the real thing. And yet you don't have to worry about the cadaver or pig labs and all that. It really makes it easier to do these. I see cadaver labs and pig labs sort of going away and an easier way to do real life training to get our skills up. Fantastic. Myself and our listeners appreciate your contributions and uh, everything you've, you've done for this field. So thank you very much. Uh, we appreciate it. And uh, we look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you. Take care. Good talking with you. 